0: Let me take just a moment, if I might, and again express a welcome, certainly, to each and every one today. And we're thankful for the presence of everyone, excited that God has sufficiently blessed us to assemble and to gather this first day of the week, to do so with a desire to serve and to please and to worship Him as we have attempted to do and shall continue for the remainder of this service. It's also true that we shall have the blessing, if it be the will of God, to meet again this evening at 5.30, and if I could... Let me encourage you to think about tonight Is our questions and answers again. So we'll have the opportunity to reflect on some matters connected to things you that you have asked. As we do say all of that this morning, a lesson I've entitled, Undenominational Christianity. That's a topic that I would hope for the next few moments we could not only consider but do so in a way that will be very meaningful, using, of course, the Bible as our goal and our basis for every one of the statements that we shall make today. There are many instances in which there are at least insinuations that a person may have the option and liberty to select the kind of church that he or she may wish to attend and to then feel free to join that organization and to happily serve God favorably in that way. I would like to ask today... Is that what the Bible teaches? Is it the case that though kind of sentiment is what the Word of God presents? If so, you and I should have no trouble with it. If, of course, it's not, we need to know what it is that the Word of God does teach and say about those kinds of things. At the very least, could I ask what even the title means? What is undenominational Christianity? For the next few moments, as we strive to consider it, I hope that you will have your Bible handy. And look with me at several verses in the Word of God. Let's begin it this way, shall we? What is the desire of the Son of God Himself? And by that I mean this. Our Savior, of course, came to this earth, and He did so in the majestic fashion of the virgin birth. As He was born of a woman, we understand, of course, that He came to ultimately live a life of sinless perfection. He ultimately, though, went to a cross because there were those, of course, who wanted Him killed. They were unsatisfied with any other kind of death. And they shouted, Crucify in Him in Mark chapter 14. In that regard, though, we know that the Lord Himself had this mission, this desire, this entity in mind. He commissioned His followers, You go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16 verse 15. And then He said this, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That person who will take upon him or herself the truth and majesty of the gospel of Christ, learning of it, obeying it, that person in so doing will put themselves in a position of being saved. But those who don't believe it and thus refuse to follow any of the matters that follow it, they'll be condemned. In that regard, you and I notice that Matthew's version of that commission read like this, in Matthew 28, "...all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world." And so, not long before the Master ascended back to heaven, He gave those statements, those commandments to His followers, and they with earnestness kept them. And of course, you and I today still have a strong appreciation of what they involve. But the next thing on the slide is this. As you make a disciple, as a person obeys the gospel, the next thing to ask, where does the person then abide? The person abides in the church. In fact, the church is the sphere of the saved. When a person is saved, he or she is put into the church by the Lord Himself. In Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. And that should bring a tremendous smile of appreciation to our face to realize the Lord's body, the church, is that special. He died for it. In Acts 20.28, we find that the blood of Christ purchased it. And so, when you and I give thought to the church, mind we take note of the wording. The Greek word is ekklesia. It literally has reference to those called out of the world into a covenant relationship with God through Christ. And thus, those that are members of the body, members of the church, have left behind attachment to the world. The world is not providing their marching orders any longer. They realize there's a better destination awaiting. They intend on heaven. And they realize this world is but temporary and it's we're only here for a while. The very first statement of that song we just now sang won't be very long. And the first statement attached it to your life and mine. That's just how it is. In that connection, the next thing on that slide is this. The church is so Beautiful. It was a part of the eternal plan and purpose of God. In Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, "...to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord." Twice in that passage, a reference to the word eternal was made in connection to the reality of the church and the purpose which He serves you and I then notice the church in that way, the next statement immediately follows. We've learned the church was established by Christ, specifically by deliberate action of Him. We've learned that the church came into being in Acts chapter 2, as, of course, the Lord Himself through the Spirit had indicated. What about that church? The Lord desired, it was His will, that the church be united Notice with me some of these passages. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. This was the night before the Lord was crucified. He was in prayer in Gethsemane. He had arrived at the point of knowing that His life the next morning would be taken. And so it was that that night, that previous night he prayed the following. First, in that prayer, he prayed for the apostles that they might have strength, that they might have fortitude, that they might enjoy commitment. Because it's true, though they live in this world, they are not of it. But then the Lord turned in his prayer, in verse 20, to all of them which shall believe on me through their word. That includes you and me. Everybody throughout all the ages of time who will believe on me, Jesus said. You and I today claim to believe on Him. We have given the appreciation of our heart as though we believe on Him. And isn't it true, there are multiplied thousands around the world who also make the claim. But Jesus said this, That they, Father, may be one, even as... Thou art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent me. It was practically the dying prayer of our Lord that all of those that would be His followers would be one. That they would enjoy a unity, a togetherness, a commonality of purpose and action that motivated a tremendous belief on the Lord Jesus forevermore prayed that they, you and I, and all would be one. Now that language is very strong, isn't it? As you and I give thought to what it means to be one, that will at least guide us over the next couple of minutes. But you'll notice the next thought on the slide is this. You and I might today ask, well, what practically does it mean to be one? If you would wish, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10. We find an inspired apostle, in fact, voicing strongly with regard to this very question. And as he does so, he will solidify in our thinking many, many things. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10, Paul would write, to a congregation that, in fact, was troubled by issues connected to disunity. Issues that related to... Matters that directly give thought to the nature of this point of discussion. And so what did Paul say to them? Verse 10, he pointed out to them these words, these truths, and how striking they must have been to them, and how compelling they are to us. He said that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The four things, Paul noted, that were to be characteristic of the unity that was to be of them. Did you know what they were? Speak the same thing. There shouldn't be any digression, any disunity on the matters of truth which are presented and taught. You need to be saying the same thing. Not only speaking the same thing, no divisions among you. I don't know how much plainer that could be. He went on to say this You are to be of a common and unitary judgment. Now, all of that being said, it perhaps begs of us to ask Was it true the Lord's followers remained faithful to this? Was it true that the followers of the Master held true to the matters of this desire of Christ? Easy to answer that, isn't it? Another statement that Paul made in the lesson text, and this was the one read in our hearing just a moment ago. In 1 Corinthians 12 verse 25, you may have noted a, bit, a bit later in that same 1 Corinthians epistle, this statement is found, and as the reading was presented to us, it read like this, "...that there be no schism in the body." The body is the church. The word schism, as you can see on that slide, has to do with that which is a rift. That which is, you see, a division. That which has to do with a separation, a disunity. Paul said there shouldn't be any in the body. Now, over the course of time, we readily appreciate that it begs of us to give thought to the way that slide ends. When it comes to doctrinal differences, when it comes to the matters connected to schisms, there ought not be any. The oneness of the body of Christ is to be a complete thing. In Ephesians 4, verses really, verses 3 through 6, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then Paul identified that this way. He said, There is one body, and one hope, and one Spirit and one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism, and one Father. Now the oneness identified in all of those presentations is a rather amazing thing. And so it begs all of us rather practically then to do this. Let's transition to the next slide. And we have certainly noted what the Lord's desire was and what it continues to be. Unity and oneness, no schisms, a togetherness, as you and I noted in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, in which all of those that would believe on the Lord should speak the same thing, they should be of the same mind, they should be of the same judgment. But of course, you and I come to a rather sad reality. The human family has not done a very good job at all of maintaining closeness to what the Lord's desire was. The human family has erred tremendously. For you and I know the top statement on that slide is the current state of worldwide Christianity in terms of its affairs. We know this. There are multiplied thousands of religious organizations that teach different things, worship in different ways, adhere to different practices, and yet they all claim to follow Jesus. They all claim to follow the same book we call the New Testament Bibles. They everyone claim to be following the same Lord and they claim to be headed to the same place, heaven. They everyone do. There's a problem here. This is not what the Lord prayed for. This is not what the Lord desired. This is not what the Lord planned in terms of action. It is not what the New Testament teaches. It just isn't. And yet that's the way it is we have to be cautious, rather mindful. And so let's step forward on this slide the following way. You know, you and I are well aware of the fact that this whole business is absurd on the very face of it. You can't all claim to follow the same book and do things as wildly different as this is. And there are times when, of course, the differences are so stark that you know from a logical standpoint both can't be right. For example, aren't you and I well aware of the fact that many of these religious organizations, they teach things that are mutually exclusive? Let me give you an example. There are some of these groups who absolutely say that you must be baptized in order to be saved. There are others that say, no, you don't. Baptism is recommended. Baptism is suggested, but you do not have to be baptized to be saved. Now let's face it, both those can't be right. Either you do or you don't. Both can't possibly be right. There are others who say worship services are optional at best. Oh, it's a good thing to go. And it's certainly to be encouraged, but let's face it, you don't have to. God knows your heart and He'll accept you even if you don't. And there are others who will turn to passages of the Word of God and will make a strong plea that Christ does teach that it's necessary. Now let's face it, both those can't be right. Either you do need to be there or you don't, which is it? The point is, those could be multiplied many times over. Many of these teachings you see are distinct. Others will say, you can in fact worship in basically any way you want. You can play a drum. You can play a harp. You can play an organ. There's others that say, oh, no, you can't. And they will make references to various passages in the Bible even. But the fact remains, either I can or I can't do these things. It can't be both ways. I suppose it'd be fair to say, men have garbled this in such a tragic fashion. Fracturing the body of Christ... Leading to divisions, presenting false hope to so many. It might well be, as you come near to the bottom of that slide, our Savior, you see, addressed this. He knew this was going to happen. He foretold it was going to be this way. In fact, if you'd like to notice a few passages in which you could almost portray the tears of our Master. He wanted us to be united. He wanted His followers to be as one. But He knew, of course, in His infinite wisdom that men would mess this up. That men would bring about troubles and problems and divisions. That men, you see, would teach their own way and denominations would result. I entitled the lesson, Undenominational Christianity. You'll not find the word denomination anywhere in the Bible. Among the 31,102 verses, the word's not there. The Bible doesn't teach it then, it doesn't teach it now. Denominational issues are men's ideas. May I ask you this, when those individuals on in Acts chapter 2 obeyed the gospel, as they followed what Peter t- commanded... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. What denomination did they become a member of? Interesting, isn't it? The Baptist church wasn't started for over 1,600 years after that. Couldn't have been the Baptists. The Methodists didn't start for over 1,700 years after that. Couldn't have been them. The Church of England didn't begin for over 1,400 years. It couldn't have been them. The Pentecostal church didn't begin for over 17 and a half centuries later. Couldn't have been them. The Presbyterian wouldn't begin for over 1,450 years. Couldn't have been them. Point is, men, you see, have messed things up tragically. The answer is, they didn't become a member of any denomination in Acts chapter 2 because there wasn't any. They became a member of the church of our Lord. The church Jesus' blood bought, the church that Jesus, in fact, died to establish, that's what they became a part of, and that's the only congregation they knew about. There wasn't any other. Now, there were individual congregations in places like Philippi and Ephesus and Thessalonica, and congregations in Jerusalem and Antioch and many other places, but they taught the same thing, they worshipped the same way, and they led people in appreciation of the same truth. There were no denominations. From a historical standpoint, every single denomination on earth is less than 510 years old. And yet the Jerusalem gospel is 2,000 years old. Obviously, nobody knew anything about denominations in the New Testament era. Today, if only we could appreciate the plea of the oneness which the Lord wished the oneness which he commanded, the oneness which he intended to be the case, but knew that men would mess that up. As you journey forward on the slide I mentioned earlier, we've noted that there were predictions, there were prophecies in the New Testament that things like this would be. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1? Let's just let Paul, in fact, say some things to Timothy that have a bearing upon the issue before us today. Remember, Timothy lived in the heart of the first century. And yet, Paul to him made this statement. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron." Paul told Timothy, Timothy, I want you to understand the fact that in the latter times, it's going to come to pass that there shall be some who will depart from the faith. Notice, they won't be in the faith. They'll depart from it, but they will maintain a connection to religion all right. And he describes it this way. They're going to teach doctrines of devils. It's not what the Lord taught. It's what the devil did. Not only that it'll be a seducing spirit that in verse number 2 is going to lead them to preach lies. You know, men may often say things like, you don't have to be baptized, but that's a lie. Many have marched their way directly to hell thinking they never had to, had to be baptized. But they opened their eyes the moment after death and realize that somebody lied to them. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Many other lies men have taught. Sad that people believe them. Sad that men have been motivated by them. One last thing in that second verse. You'll notice it says, teaching lies and hypocrisy. All of that, you see, reminds us that many a lie has been presented in the name of religion. Let's go back, though, to the words of Jesus Himself. What better authority could we have than this one, in which Jesus Himself said it like this in Matthew 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 21 of that chapter, Jesus Himself portraying the matters that would be the case said this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Jesus gave this portrayal of the judgment. Did you notice He said, That day. This isn't just some arbitrary day, it is that day. And Jesus said, On that day, many will say to me in that day, Lord, we preached in your name, but I never knew you. Lord, we cast out demons in your name. I never knew you. We prophesied in your name. I never knew you. They thought they knew him, but he never knew them. They had been deceived. They labored under the assumption whether it was by false teaching others had presented to them, or whether they had deceived themselves, whatever it was, they were under the illusion that what they had been doing was of the Lord, and Jesus said, I never knew you. It's not that He had it one time, He never had. May I say, those ought to make the hairs on our neck stand. To give thought to these, no doubt arriving on that day, fully supposing that in sincerity they were right. But they weren't. There is no replacement, you see, for the truth of the standard of the Word of God. Just for me to think that I'm following it isn't enough, there needs to be study, appreciation, understanding that only the Word of God will be the final determining factor. Because Jesus said in, in John 12, verse 48, the fact that it is the Word of God that shall stand as the judge. In other words, it's the one to which the Master will turn to determine if your life and mine is right or not. Oh, what power is in that Word. As you notice at the bottom of that slide, then we've been reminded that undenominational Christianity is a serious business. It's what the Lord wished. It's what He planned for. It's what He wanted. Is it His fault that men messed it up? Is it His fault that men have come along to teach things that are of the devil and not of him? Certainly it's not the Lord's fault. He warned us it was going to happen. He prepared us for the reality. So what should you and I do? What should you and I do then to make sure we do not fall prey to this business of denominational matters? And so, very briefly, what about this closing slide? What should we do first thing we surely must do is appreciate the narrowness connected to what the Lord desired. Jesus is the Son of God. You and I realize all power in heaven and on earth was given to Him, Matthew 28, 18. And yet, despite having all power, He made the determination that there was one Jerusalem gospel and it was the faith that was to be presented for all time. It was never to be changed, never to be altered, never to be amended. In fact, to the Galatians, in Galatians 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul told them, Though an angel from heaven preach some some the gospel unto you, let him be accursed. Even angels can't change the gospel. Even the powers of heaven can't change it. It is as the Lord presented it. It is, as those inspired apostles faithfully taught it twenty centuries ago, and it must remain that way in order for us to be found pleasing unto the God who made us. Not only that level of appreciation, might we sadly make this observation? When the Lord was asked if there will be few saved, he said yes, in Matthew seven fourteen and in Luke thirteen twenty four. Now that may not sound palatable, but the Lord said it. May I point out in addition to that, you and I must then in light of these things follow closely the warning of 1 John 4.1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. For many false prophets are going out into the world. John said there's going to be a lot of false teachers There's going to be a lot of folks who, for one reason or another, are motivated to share some message, but it will not be true. And if you follow it, you'll be as lost as they are. We have to then test the spirits. You'll notice that that testing of the spirits then demands some things of us. We have to be the people of courage, we have to be people of commitment. We may have a close dear friend who has chosen to follow something that the Bible doesn't teach. Just because he or she's a friend, we can't wrap the arms of endorsement around them and just pat them on the back and say, God be with you. That's not going to happen. We need to have enough courage to have a conversation with them. Have you ever read these verses? Could I ask you to consider them with me? Because their soul is not only in jeopardy, But in that kind of direction, it's going to lead to doom. That is it all. As we safeguard our own consideration, note that next point. We are surrounded, of course, in this world by denominationalism. It has become the order of the day. We must never become comfortable with it. That is to say, ever reach a point in which we at least to some degree accept it. Because Christ hates it. It is opposite to that which he prayed. It's the very opposite of the thing he gave his life for. So we cannot reach some point of having some degree of consideration of it. We can't give heed to the creeds of men. Furthermore, we are not in a position, you see, to support those kinds of ideas. But our goal must be to wear only the name Christian and that faithfully, Acts eleven twenty six, and live faithfully, in the church that Jesus established. That's the only one He's going to recognize at the day of judgment. It's the only one, according to Ephesians 5.23, that will be saved. Today, as we close this lesson, it's been our desire to give some thought to undenominational Christianity because that's what the New Testament teaches. And so this concluding slide simply summarizes some of that which we've noted, and it does so in this way. Jesus desires unity. He pled for it. He died for it. May you and I love that essence and unity as much as He did and strive to be one. And in that striving, we of course will feel sorry and sad that denominations exist because we know the Lord isn't pleased with them. But we all all the while will first strive to safeguard our connection to the Lord and we will help to set that great example before those that we know. Undenominational Christianity, non denominational Christianity. Today, I hope we've been reminded of the powerful nature of that truth and teaching in the New Testament. That teaching, that gospel, perhaps begs this question Are you and I a faithful New Testament Christian? Are we those whose names have been placed unwaveringly in the book of life? If so, oh, how wonderful it was. And may we continue to live faithfully according to that idea. Because that's what, again, the New Testament asserts. This very day, if you're not a Christian, perhaps having never become one, you realize a plan of salvation proceeds like this because the Lord taught it. It's not the genius of some group of people. The New Testament says, believe in Jesus. He walked upon this planet as the Son of God. In so doing, He did so sinlessly. He thus asserted the necessity of believing in Him, repenting of sins, confession of His name, and being baptized for the remission of sins. And today, what a joyous day of rejoicing it would be to assist someone in becoming a Christian. But once you become a Christian, our task is to be faithful until death. To be faithful throughout life. To be faithful to the calling of the Lord in all those ways. Today, if we could be of some help in restoring someone to that, to that kind of life, we would love to do that. Again, in a final observation, it's the Lord's doing, not our own. We're just happy to be a small part of it. We will encourage. We will make note of your confession and your repentance. And we will, with haste, make prayer unto God on your behalf. If today we could help in any of those ways, we'd love to do that. This psalm of encouragement has been selected. Won't you come while together we stand and sing if we may be of service?